welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel, and what a moment in history we are now in. Our last podcast just a couple of weeks ago was a lighthearted take on St. Patrick's Day and all of the revelry surrounding that holiday. And now here we are a week after St. Patrick's Day, and there was no parade last week in New York City for the first time in over 250 years, and events all over the world were canceled. And we are reminded how quickly the world we live in can change and how much we take for granted. We're now living in a time that's been compared to September 2001 after 9-11 or December 1941 after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And I'll, I'll share a personal experience of mine uh, from the last couple of weeks. Um, two weeks ago, me and a couple of buddies took a trip to Louisville, Kentucky to attend a gun and prepper survivalist show. And the reason why we were doing this was it was a research endeavor for a project my friend and History Factory colleague Adam Nemet is working on. Essentially, he's documenting a homesteading project that he is doing at home with his family to better prepare them for a more uncertain future. And they're going about this in a way that is decidedly more collaborative and less paranoid than a lot of people that you see who tend to do these kinds of projects and identify with the alt-right or the far left and are more susceptible and more likely to perpetuate conspiracy theories and immerse themselves in what I've learned has been called by some academics, apocalotainment. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can follow Adam's project at thunderbirddisco.com or at thunderbird underscore disco on Instagram. Anyway, we went to this event in Louisville and it definitely had an alt-right and big time MAGA vibe to it as we expected, um, but kind of in a sad and tired way. I mean, apparently now that Trump has been elected and has been president for a few years, um, gun sales are actually down, and the whole doomsday apocalypse movement has kind of moved more to the left. Uh, so we're actually planning on going to a commune in central Virginia to check out what that scene is like next. Um, but back to this event in Louisville, um, you could buy every gun imaginable. There was a lot of survivalist gear, ready-to-eat meals with 25-year expiration dates, uh, a ton of Trump and far-right-leaning memorabilia and merchandise. And at this event, we listened to a talk by this guy named Bob Gaskin, who is a kind of survivalist entrepreneur, speaker, author, influencer, who offers a lot of programs for survivalists and also at this event, he was selling pallets of MREs at a booth, which uh, if you're not up on your prepper jargon, MREs is meals ready to eat. And uh, Bob's talk was all about the coronavirus. And while I didn't agree with a lot of what he had to say, I have to give him credit for being able to deliver a 90-minute off-the-cuff talk with no prepared materials. This definitely wasn't you know, like a PowerPoint presentation or anything like that. And he very effortlessly and authoritatively blended a lot of real facts with other comments that I would probably dispute. Um, but to his credit, he also didn't shill about, you know, MREs and having, you know, people buy the products that he was selling over at his booth. Um, he actually, to his credit, said that a family could eat for a year based on one $300 shopping trip to Walmart, which I'm still trying to figure out. 
Um, so in its own way, uh, Bob's speech was kind of a apocalyptic thought leadership. And um, this was back on Sunday, March 8th, so just a couple of weeks ago. And at that time, he very confidently predicted that uh, in three weeks, all schools and businesses were going to be closed. Markets were going to be decimated. Uh, transportation and hospitality industries were basically going to be at a standstill. Um, and it hit, hit especially hard. And he said that Americans were going to probably suffer disproportionately um, because we were going to be resistant to the notion of having our rights restricted. And he also predicted that I think by the end of March, uh, President Trump will be announcing people can't congregate in groups of three or more, and that over 2 billion people are going to have the coronavirus. Um, so we'll see. But after that event, as you might imagine, um, we weren't necessarily, you know, kind of believing a lot of what Bob had to say. And in fact, you know, far from feeling like we needed to go off and, and isolate ourselves after spending the better part of two days with a lot of people who struck us as a little bit unhinged, me and my buddies went to a concert on that Sunday night to give our souls a shower, as I described. And we had a great night listening to music and dancing alongside a couple of other thousand people. And then we went to a couple of cocktail bars, as one's inclined to do when they're in Louisville, and drink some bourbon. And uh, then the next morning, we slept in a little, woke up a little bit before 10, and uh, we're getting ready to make the drive back to Virginia when we learned that the market had tanked, triggering the first circuit breaker. And uh, I'm not going to lie, it was eerie. And we've been nervously joking about Bob Gaskins ever since. The thing I've been thinking about as well is that while we've been reading over the last couple of weeks and have been hearing about how unprecedented this all is, the reality is what's also been unprecedented is how healthy the last 70 years of life has been for so many of us. And epidemics and pandemics were really a part of daily human life that we're now experiencing but maybe older family members of ours have already had some experience with this. Um, and of course, our ancestors were confronted with this all of the time. So I thought it would be great to speak to someone who could enlighten us a little bit about pandemics and what they've been like. And I was grateful to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Elena Konis. Dr. Konis is a professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Her research focuses on scientific controversies, science denial, and the public understanding of science. She holds a PhD in the history of health sciences from the University of California at San Francisco, master's degrees in journalism and public health from Berkeley, and a bachelor's degree in biology from Columbia University. Her first book, Vaccine Nation, America's Changing Relationship with Immunization, received the Arthur J. Visseltaire Award from the American Public Health Association and was named a Choice Outstanding Academic Title and a Science Pick of the Week by the journal Nature. And a couple of weeks ago, she wrote an article in Time titled, What History's Economy-Disrupting Outbreaks Can Teach Us About Coronavirus Panic. Elena, thank you for joining us today. Odd times we're in right now, aren't they? Very odd. Certainly times I never imagined I would live to see in my own lifetime. 
Yes. Well, we were struck by uh, your article and in, in, in reviewing your your work, the first thing I thought was it must be very surreal to suddenly feel like we are living through uh, a lot of what you have studied from a uh, from a historical perspective. Yeah, as a historian of medicine and public health, really what I study is one epidemic after another and also things that we didn't think were epidemics at the time, but then we look back and call them epidemics. Um, and yeah, it's something that's very familiar to me um, through the books and the pages of books, but absolutely that knowledge now suddenly has a resonance that it never had before. Yeah. And what are some of these other pandemics that Americans have faced? And is there anyone that reminds you specifically of what we're facing now with COVID-19? Yeah, you know, there are so many to talk about. And there are some that remind me um, that COVID makes me think of more than others. And when you talk about Americans, I guess there's a number of different ways to think about it. But um, sure. One place to, start, to kind of start talking about our history is the point of contact when Europeans first started coming to what we now call the Americas. And one reason to start it there is because they just brought a ton of disease with them. Um, and then they ended up carting some diseases back to the quote-unquote old world, as they called it back then. And some of the worst diseases that they brought um, to the Americas were smallpox and measles. And there were just horrible, horrible epidemics of those literally for centuries. And they got worse and worse through the 1700s. And finally in the 1800s, we had a smallpox vaccine that started to offer some protection against it. But even without protection, there were still smallpox epidemics every once in a while. And they would really strike terror in some cities, be, largely because they were worried about whether it was going to be a really bad epidemic or a mild epidemic because smallpox could hit in really bad forms where the mortality rate was like 50% or higher. Um, and sometimes it would just be a mild outbreak with a much lower mortality rate. But either way, the markets would panic and people would start quarantining goods and not allowing goods in or traders in from other cities. And so it just wreaked havoc on local economies. Um, so yeah, thinking about what COVID is doing to not just our domestic economy right now, but the global economy really makes me think about quite a few of the pandemics that we've, we've dealt with in the past. Um, you asked me kind of which one it makes me think of the most. And right now, I've been thinking a lot about polio, which probably for many of us, either like our parents or our grandparents, I don't know if that's the case with you, like many of us were vaccinated against it when we were kids, but our parents and grandparents were old enough to remember what polio was like in, you know, the 40s, especially the 1940s. Um, and the early 1950s. And we had such horrible epidemics of polio, which caused, in the worst cases, paralysis that sometimes led to death. And it really took a toll on kids, especially school-aged kids, um, some of whom ended up paralyzed for life. And in the worst cases, ended up in these contraptions called iron lungs because they're um, the musculature that allowed them to breathe no longer worked right. And so the iron lungs would breathe for them. And these epidemics were seasonal. 
some years they were really, really horribly bad. Other years they weren't so bad. Um, but when they were bad, places would just shut down. And this is what COVID makes me think of. Swimming pools closed, movie theaters closed, restaurants, churches, festivals were canceled. People stayed home from school. People, I mean, we call it social distancing now. Back then they would say, like, don't mix with people from, quote, other groups and avoid strangers and things like that. Um, it was such an an intense time of isolation for communities that experienced outbreaks of polio. And I certainly have never lived through anything like that. But like I said, my grandparents surely did. Um, And yeah, COVID has been making me think a lot about those times. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel. I read um, a piece in the Wall Street Journal on Friday by... um, David Oshinsky, uh, who wrote uh, Polio, an American Story, and he made some of those comparisons. And one of the things that he he wrote in his piece that I was struck by was, uh, quote, the impact of disease on American history is a remarkably understudied subject. Um, and I imagine you would agree with that, given, given your work. Um, and now we're really obviously experiencing firsthand something that was really part of daily American life until just, you know, to your point, 60 or 70 years ago. Um, and I can, I can see now why there's that parallel, although uh, COVID-19 uh, hopefully at, at this point is, is not uh, necessarily uh, uh, attacking younger people the way polio did. Uh, I see your point of the parallels with respect to the uh, uh, sort of the social isolation aspect of it. Um, and that, that raises kind of another, another question I had, Elena, is has there been sort of consistent themes of how Americans have responded uh, to pandemics or uh, has each pandemic kind of, you know, been unique based on, you know, when it occurred and where it occurred and uh, obviously the tools and resources that Americans did or didn't have at that time to respond to them? Yeah, that's such a good question. And in a way, I I think Americans have responded historically to pandemics and epidemics, much as people in other parts of the world have. And usually there's a good deal of panic. Usually it leads to um, xenophobia that was either pre-existing or takes shape anew and people find groups that they blame for the latest disease or the latest epidemic and point that blame um, even if it's not warranted. And then really there's the effect on society. What happens to the social institutions that we have? Which ones end up really crumbling under the weight of the epidemics and which ones end up um, flourishing or, you know, just barely withstand and then come bounding back, you know, schools really can suffer during epidemics, um, so can all, all kinds of businesses, and we're seeing that right now with the whole industries struggling with the current epidemic in the U.S. And um, what's really interesting to me as a historian is how the epidemics really tap into or um, kind of open up fissures that are already there. And for instance, like if you've got a lot of inequality in the society, um, an epidemic will show you who's the most vulnerable. 
and will make that inequality even more apparent than it wasn't before. And it could be an economic inequality or a different kind of inequality, um, but epidemics have a way of doing that. So, yeah, in terms of our response, I think, sadly, we often respond with xenophobia um, and we often respond with panic, but we often also in the U.S., especially in modern times, respond with a lot of resilience and a lot of scientific and technical expertise. And we can see that now, like an enormous amount of research and investment going into finding um, if not a cure, a means of preventing this virus's spread. You know, going back to polio, which I mentioned a few moments ago, one of the reasons why polio also comes to mind is that it would come back um, as a seasonal disease year after year after year after year until we finally had an effective vaccine. So people were living with this scary threat until we finally had the vaccine. And these days, I would say, you know, for the last, like, several decades, certainly, like, in the 2000s, the 90s, the 80s, even the 70s, we keep thinking, oh, with this epidemic, we will stop it with a vaccine. Um, and almost never do we come up with the vaccine as, as quickly um, as we would like. And almost never do we come up with vaccines that are as immediately effective as we would like. So sadly, history makes me think that we may have a long road ahead of us with this new infection, and I just really hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and your your points are, are well taken. You you mentioned, obviously, the um, sort of the element of blame, and, you know, there's been criticism of, of President Trump with potentially, you know, sort of, you know, calling this the Chinese virus, and so there's an interesting parallel mm-hmm. um, there. Um, and obviously, you know, it's, it's amazing how quickly things have happened, right? We're having this discussion on, on March 18th, and it feels like eight or nine days ago, there was still, you know, at least half the country was still in denial or not covering or not following uh, this this emerging uh, story very closely, um, and it was still being dismissed by a lot of our leaders. And here we are, like a week later, and all of a sudden you've got a lot of um, a lot of agreement suddenly uh, in in what's been a pretty polarized um, government. And uh, you know, as of this afternoon, um, the federal government is talking about you know stepping in with like a trillion dollars to provide support to uh, big industry, small businesses, and then even providing you know direct. Uh, Compensation to citizens, um, and I'm, I was curious if there's been if there's also a precedent for that. I mean, has the federal government stepped in and responded to pandemics like that in the past, where they've provided that kind of level of support uh, in terms of bailouts to you know big industry and relief to smaller businesses and, and compensating citizens directly? You know, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think we've ever seen the federal government step in to this scale. But on the other hand, I think that the reason why we have um, the federal public health infrastructure that we have is because back in the 19th century and the early 20th century, we saw increasingly a need for the federal government to coordinate responses to epidemic diseases, namely yellow fever and also um, plague. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were um, a handful of epidemics of plague that 
hit the west coast of the U.S. Um, because it was coming from Asia. And these epidemics were just terrifying. And speaking of leaders kind of denying the truth at the time, the one example was the, the governor of San Francisco wanted to keep it quiet that, that there was plague in San Francisco because he didn't want the rest of California to put an embargo on goods coming out of the city. Um, and then it, when the state found out of it, the governor wanted to keep it quiet. And ultimately what ended up happening was we had to turn to the federal government for help. Um, and the federal government's response was to kind of coordinate health officers at a level or degree that they never had before. And they ended up kind of creating the, um, the first steps toward the major public health institutions that we have at the federal level today. So we have, interestingly, I think it's fair to say the federal government has actually grown in response to lots, if not most or all of our past epidemics. Um, but this, this particular response of um, compensating individual citizens, uh, a fellow historian could correct me. I'm going to say I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, not, not that parallels this at all, but some other historian could probably think of one and correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, right. Well, it's interesting, too, your point about um, the sort of increased role that the federal government is now taking, because obviously the expectations were that uh, the government was going to move quicker on this and that there was a sense that um, businesses and, uh, you know, when you looked at obviously what was happening with, you know, organizations like the NBA uh, and other sports organizations, they were almost along with other Fortune 500 companies. I know for us last, last you know, for the last couple of weeks, just seeing how our clients who are Fortune 500 organizations were beginning to respond really rapidly ahead of, of, of federal guidelines, you know, that's when mm -hmm. it became more serious for us was to see how, you know, clients in telecommunications, energy, aviation, you know, to see how they were responding based on, uh, obviously, their expertise was really more telling uh, for us, I think, than, than obviously the, the position of the federal government, you know, 10, 12 days ago. Um, so that's an interesting point that you make that that historically uh, it may have been that, you know, local businesses were more responsive. Um, do you have any sense of what business communities were like in the past in terms of how they responded to pandemics? Were there particular industries or companies or brands that were particularly well-known for uh, responding admirably uh, during a time of crisis like this? Ooh, responding admirably. That's, that's a tough question. I can, I can think of lots of examples. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can think of lots of examples of um, oh, companies or enterprises that probably aren't even worth mentioning now because they don't exist, but um, that, you know, were opportunistic in the face of epidemics and tried really hard to peddle, for instance, their cholera cure or their polio preventive or oh, this yeah. or that. Yeah, you know, to kind of try to make as much money off of an epidemic as they could. Um, but, you know, this this issue That might of, be a podcast unto itself, Elena. We'll have you back on uh, that one. <laughs> it probably would be. It would actually be a really fascinating one. So, yeah, you should keep yeah. that one in your back pocket. Yeah. But yeah. thinking about Fortune 500 companies being a step ahead of the federal government on this one, um, 
actually also makes me think of the polio era and how when we came up with finally had a polio vaccine um, that was proven effective in 1955, you know, we were just going to leave it to the companies to sell it and to just sell it on an open market. And actually, you know, the, the companies making it were quite happy to do that. The public was skittish and then some of the companies were uncomfortable that the public <laughs> was uncomfortable. And so, President Eisenhower, who wanted nothing to do with um, the polio vaccine, its distribution, and um, ensuring access to it, was kind of forced to step in and say, okay, 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 the federal government will play a role here. It will make sure that, you know, the companies are paid, all the manufacturers of the vaccine are paid fairly and that all of their product actually is um, distributed equitably and that it doesn't, you know, that there is no black market and that there is no... um, kind of stockpiling of the vaccine for shareholders or, you know, company presidents' families and things like that. So it was the public, including the business community, that that looked to Washington for some help to control the mayhem. So pretty a little different from what's going on now, but still yeah. reminds yeah. me of that era. Yeah. Other than the obvious, you know, advances, obviously, in technology and, and communications, you know, what do you see, if anything, is, that's different about a pandemic in 21st century America versus, you know, 20th century America? Um, oh, yeah. You know, are there, are there yeah. any other things that you see that are really different about what, I mean, obviously, for... Um, for 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 you know whatever ninety percent of our population and 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 for the world for that matter we haven't this is new uncharted territory I mean the, the number of times I've heard the words uncharted territory over the last four days um, yeah but yeah. Uh, but but it, it's it's true you know I mean it, it it really does kind of feel almost like a nine eleven moment um, but. Um, yeah, we're just, you know, it it just, you know, feels like we just haven't lived through something like this, but as we're discussing, this was pretty common uh for our, you know, grandparents and great-grandparents. Um and so are there any other things yeah. that you see that are kind of uniquely different about what this is like for us versus what it was like from them other than obviously we have um hopefully a lot more resources at our disposal? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most, or maybe two of the most important differences are that we're so much more urban, um, and, you know, we're just a much less rural country in many, many respects, and we're also much more um, interconnected, (laughs) both globally and within our own borders. You know, people, like the amount of air traffic between cities, states, and countries is is vastly different today than it was um, in any of the 20th century epidemics that I've mentioned so far. And the same is true of international travel. And what it means is that these, a pandemic like COVID-19 becomes a pandemic much more quickly um, than pandemics of the past did in many cases. And they have just, you know, enormous vulnerable populations. Like I'm speaking from Berkeley, California right now, which is, under a shelter-in-place order for three weeks. And that's because we live in a really densely populated, highly interconnected, vast metropolitan region where, you know, our city is really connected to our neighboring city, Oakland, connected to San Francisco across the bay and San Jose and all of Silicon Valley 
um, in all of the East Bay and, you know, you have a couple of cases in one county and suddenly you've got those cases overnight, you know, traveling to the next county and the next and then getting on a plane. And this, this is what makes this moment really, really unique and, quite frankly, really scary. Yeah, that's a great point you make about just the difference of geography and, and where we all live and work now versus, you know, 100 years ago. Um, and also that, that notion of interconnectedness is, is not just about, you know, technology and mobility. It's also about supply chain. Um, you know, one thing that struck me is how we're all now like innately conscious of supply chain, which is why there's been these panics around toilet paper and hand sanitizer, uh, yeah. you know, which is, uh, which is insane. But when you think about it, you know, it, 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 it that same level of interconnect connectedness is also creating sort of, it's like every, the, the virus is moving faster, but also like sort of fear and panic is moving faster as well. Absolutely. That is so, so true. And these days, although I don't think this is so unique, we respond to our fear and panic with quite a bit of consumerism, (laughs) Um, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah. 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 Toilet paper, many people have said, is not going to get us through this pandemic. But when we're looking at a time of isolation, we, we cling to the comforts that we need and know to feel, quote unquote, normal. Yeah. Yeah. So based on your understanding of, of past pandemics and, and how people have responded in the past, are there any aspects to what we're facing now that you feel are just still misunderstood by the public? You know, um, I, I might highlight only a few. I think you noted in the beginning of our conversation that, yeah, in stark contrast to polio, COVID takes a toll on a much older demographic. And, um, you know, anecdotally and also personally, I've just been seeing um, a surprisingly lax attitude among um, some older members of my own community, for example, um, and I'm not sure what to attribute that to. I don't. It may not be misunderstanding at all, so it may not be fair to characterize that as misunderstanding. And, you know, right now I can speak best from my own context in, again, Northern California where people seem pretty panicked and from my perspective they seem sufficiently panicked. And I know this is not true everywhere, um, but I don't think we're misunderstanding the the potential of this infectious disease right now. I, I think we're grasping it again. Yeah. The fact that, yeah. yeah, I'm under shelter in place for the next three weeks makes me think that, like, at least the folks in charge grasp it, and um, I'm hoping they grasp it just in time. Yeah. Well, well said, and thank you so much for, for sharing your your insights and, and perspective, and uh, I hope we can talk about it soon and and hopefully uh, hopefully under brighter circumstances. So thank you so much for your time today, Elena, and um, stay, stay healthy and keep safe. Thank you, Jason. Likewise, I hope you stay healthy and safe too, and thanks for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks again to Dr. Elena Konis for spending time with us. And as we talked about, the impact of this health crisis is going to be multifaceted and far-reaching. 
And to that end, I also talked with History Factory founder and CEO Bruce Weindrick about some of those topics, including the history of some of the products that we've seen panicked consumers make a run on. Bruce, how are you? Happy St. Patrick's Day. Oh, I've got my, well, you can't see them. I've got my green socks on. Uh, but yes, it is St. Patrick's Day. Not quite as much fun as it used to be. But it, but it was not fun. It hadn't been fun for me. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's been an insane uh, couple of weeks uh, since our last podcast. And uh, perhaps uh, an unprecedented couple of weeks, not, not even two weeks. But uh, we're having this discussion, as we said, on, on St. Patrick's Day. And two weeks ago, the Dow uh, had just risen up to uh, over 26,700 points. And the S&P 500 had risen up to uh, over 3,000 points. And yesterday we had the third worst day in market history. And the so-called circuit breakers have tripped for three times in the last six days. And the last time I checked today, the markets had clawed back to the Dow being uh, just under 21,000 and the S&P hovering around 2,500. So that's still nearly 20% off from where we were a couple of weeks ago. Um, so from your perspective, Bruce, how does the last couple of weeks compare to 2008 or 1987 or, God forbid, 1929? What are the historical parallels that you see, if any? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I actually remember 87 and 2008. Um, certainly, I spent a lot of time reading about and studying uh, the, the Great Crash. Um, uh, Black Friday. But let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, um, first of all, as we know, the stock market is not the economy. Uh, but there are always long-term implications of these kinds of things. And they're all kind of different. As you, each economic uh, uh, catastrophe has a different, has usually a different uh, uh, set of circumstances. Um, whether they be the, the underlying instability of a particular asset class, whether it be the interrelationship uh, between countries, uh, there's a variety of things. Um, you know, I, there are a number of comparisons. One, uh, you know, the one I compare it to in some ways is 9-11. Um, you know, 9-11, everything just stopped. Yeah. Everything just stopped. And that's kind of what's happened here. The only difference, and, and again, it was unexpected, and it was it came from somewhere else, and we weren't prepared, and it hit us, and everything came to a stop. Yeah. The 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 difference is, is gosh, I remember at the time, within a few days, uh, President Bush was telling everybody, get out there, you know, start spending, uh, help the economy. Uh, we're not doing that. We that's not going to happen this time. Right. Um, it's just the opposite. It's like, don't go out there. Uh, don't spend. Stay stay hunkered down. Social uh, distancing. So in that sense, the, the, this is a huge combination of a, kind of an economic as well as a social uh, uh, stimulus or, or stimulus is probably the wrong word, you know, catastrophe. This is going to really, it'll hit some of the same It'll hit some of the same parts of the market. Obviously, transportation, which is a huge part of our market, uh, they're going to get hit. 
service industries, which have become an increasingly important part of our economy. Uh, they're going to get hit. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, you think of how many people are, are employed in the services. So the point being is it's kind of a hybrid of both. And it's interesting to see, it, uh, interestingly enough, you mentioned the circuit breakers. You know, the Fed used to have a toolbox uh, that they could deal with these things. And I would argue, you know, uh, from the other side, you know, the first responders and, and, and governments used to have a toolbox that they could respond to these things. Neither has the exact same set of tools that this one's going to require. And both are, in a sense, kind of, you know, making it up as they go along. Ultimately, really what it comes down to in all cases is, is kind of confidence not to be afraid, to, to, whether it's an economic downturn. A panic is the worst thing that can happen. And so whether it, it's economic or whether it's cultural, I think the other thing that's going to happen, though, Jason, like the, uh, like the circuit breakers that happened in, after 87, or like the uh, systems we have in place uh, post 9-11 in terms of uh, the air traffic uh, safety and, and security, I, what I think we're going to see is years and years of, of impact and new things that, that we're just going to have to get used to living with that not unlike before economic crashes and before uh, the the 9/11, uh, we didn't know about. So honestly, I think that that, that not even the short-term response. What are going to be kind of the longer-term things that we're going to have to live with from now on? Having been having, we're not through it yet, but having hopefully when we're, when we're through. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point that this is not just an economic shock that like 9/11 this is going to change how we live and, and hopefully uh, maybe not as convenient, but for, for the better, there's going to be some things that come out of this. I, I, I might argue with you. I still, I, I think that the, the government does actually have a set of tools, um, but that's a different, that's a different uh, topic unto itself. So we'll leave that. <laughs> but um, beyond, beyond the markets, um, we're also looking back right now, obviously, at when America faced other pandemics and health crises. And how did business uh, respond, for instance, during the Spanish flu pandemic back in 1918? What was the economic impact uh, of that experience? You know, that's a really interesting story. And, and you know, one, one thing that, that we're finding is really how little uh, history was done on these previous, uh, 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 particularly economic history, was done on these previous uh, uh, epidemics or, or, or catastrophes. Um, you know, it was really interesting. Um, as you look back, as, as they look back, and there's been some study of it, particularly in terms of what was hoped to be in preparation for the next pandemic. Um, you know, it, it, it was interesting. It's, a, it's very similar in the sense that, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, movie theaters, restaurants, um, what were then service and entertainment industries got hit. They were the ones that got hit really bad. Uh, it's not surprising that that it's very similar uh, to what happened today. Um, the other interesting thing was kind of it came right after uh, um, World War One, and so what happened was the first time we kind of looked around and said, "Wait a minute." 
you know, not only are people coming back and maybe perhaps bringing some of this back, but as they came back to the United States, they 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 moved out and mm. different parts of the country. And so what they found were, uh, as you can no doubt imagine, 1919, uh, those areas of the country um, that were hit the hardest by the influenza, influenza had the highest number of bankruptcies of small businesses, okay? Mm. So I think we might want to be thinking about that. Now, remember, a big difference between 18 and today, although it was, we were becoming increasingly urbanized, uh, in those days, we still had a lot of rural areas. And so it was interesting because it was in those rural areas where, where they were, where the income was lower and where they had a lot of uh, uh, minorities. Interestingly enough, they had higher, higher fatalities, higher fatalities, affected uh, affected the whole community, affected the businesses. Um, it was a much shorter uh, uh, economic downturn in in the in the in the in the in the, the sense of the, the pandemic. What what's interesting about it is a lot of economists say then it stuck with us then for another decade. So 1921, there was a 2021, there was a huge recession, almost took out the automobile industry, the, the nascent automobile industry. A lot of that they say was an aftershock mm. of the of the eighteen nineteen period. So I think what 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 if we're going to be paying attention to the economic, uh, 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 this probably could be perhaps as short term, short term being eighteen months, if they look back at the eighteen nineteen. But what's really interesting is the longer term implications, economic indications, whether it be uh, shifting shifting the nature of of, of Poverty uh, of, of of small businesses, of uh, the ability then to to generate kind of you know uh, uh, you know new businesses, and and by like I said by by twenty one we were in a major 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 recession. So uh, I I think that the, the the lesson to be learned is this comes in waves. Uh, remember the, the pandemic of of eighteen eighteen was three waves. Spring. Uh, right a winter and then they've been to the next year in 1990. And this was also, if you look, think back on it, a global uh, pandemic. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's exactly what we're, we're facing now. The differences today, though, were also interrelated. You know, we hear this all, the, 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 the 1918, you didn't hear much about supply chain. There was no such thing. These companies were vertically integrated. That, that was the American miracle. We had everything. We could, we could, we could, we could mine it. We could we could refine it. We could we could do it all. And that's not the same anymore. So the interrelationship is going to be very different. So whereby it was uneven across the United States. I guess my if you're going to extrapolate, it's going to be uneven around the world. There are going to be those parts of the world that, like parts of the United States, uh, were affected, and uh, you'll you'll see the same kind of thing again. What you may see differently, technology will be a big differentiator. Those developing countries that are so much more reliant on mobile probably will have a lot better chance of being able to get that small business engine up and running. Yeah, and you know, back back to your notion that uh, you know this this is going to take some time. Uh, reports are suggesting that you know, we're not going to have a vaccine for this probably for at least another year. 
Although I did read today that uh, Regeneron, uh, the big biotech companies reported that they're aiming to have a possible drug for COVID-19 ready for uh, human clinical trials uh, as early as this summer. But how, what has kind of been the role of global health in, in this in the past? How has global healthcare been able to respond to these kinds of global public health crises and the need to develop uh, uh, you know, med- medicine at scale very rapidly? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. We're also, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, again, I'm dating myself. AIDS, SARS, MERS, Zika, Ebola, swine flu, you know, that's all kind of modern stuff. You know, we forget about smallpox, cholera, yellow fever, right? That, 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 that if you really want to look at where the early, early kind of vaccines were, were being developed, that's when they were being developed. And, and you have to remember, you, 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 there were two things, there's two things. You mentioned the clinical trials. You know, what's remarkable about this is, you know, back in the day, I mean, you look how long it took from the first polio issues in the 1920s when, when uh, President Roosevelt, uh, uh, not then President, but Franklin Roosevelt contracts polio, takes till 1955, you know, uh, for, for SARC to get a best vaccine. So, I mean, that was a long time. Ten years was the average, and then it took a lot longer. The fact that today, number one, you can get it developed as quickly as you can, that's of great value to just the cumulative nature of research over the years and how we're able to, to do this so much faster and the testing equipment and the, and the, and the centers of excellence. Second of all, the ability to get this through the, regu- the, uh, the regulatory regime, that in, in itself is, is, is totally amazing. Um, how quickly they'll get it through uh, and how quickly they'll facilitate it. Because ultimately what we learned in all those years of vaccines is safety is paramount. Safety is paramount. So you have to be very, very careful when you develop these vaccines because of the nature of a vaccine that you don't do more harm than the, than the disease itself. Now, the, the, the globalness of this story is kind of interesting. The story itself had to do when the United Nations was mm-hmm. being formed. Um, the United Nations was being formed in the late 40s and one of the first, one of the first ideas that came up even before the United Nations was formed, that they needed some kind of World Health Assembly. And it took them a while. I mean, the United Nations was formed, and it wasn't until like 1948, four or five years later, that they were able to get the World Health Organization up and running, okay? Mm-hmm. And again, look at what they were where they were concerned about, the eradication of smallpox, okay? Uh, communicable diseases, Will come later, but smallpox was a big, big issue on 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 the on their agenda uh, when they get founded back in 1948. So the 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 idea of of you know these these early conferences uh, that had been going on through the earlier diseases that we're we're used to becoming then from 1945 when the UN gets uh, uh, you know established. All the way through to 48 when they get established, this has been a this has been a dream, uh, and I think they're playing an amazing role today. But, but that is really the beginning. If you really think about it, and and by the way, what's happening in those days? We that had we had the telex, so we were able to share a, a, a lot of this information. If you you look at what's going on right now in terms of these people who are looking for vaccines, you'll see these these articles and mentions of these aggregations of, of, of um, 
scholarly academic journals that people are using this, this, this data to be able to do it today. Well, remember what it would have been like, you know, back in 47, uh, in, back in the 50s when they were going after malaria. Um, they had the, it was a very, there was no information infrastructure. So the information infrastructure, the regulatory regime, the advances in science have all come together to shorten that 10 year, 20, 30 year vaccine curve to what? It looks like it could be a matter of 18 months from, from invention to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, by the way, then, then they have to scale it, right? You right. Get, get the vaccine, you get the science, you get it approved, now you gotta scale it. So right. um, it, it's pretty amazing when you think of what they're gonna do, that, what we hope they're gonna do this. Yeah. Well, on a lighter note, as we talk about all these uh, intense issues, you mentioned earlier the global supply chain, and uh, we've all seen some of that manifest its way, manifest itself in kind of odd ways. You've seen over the last week that there was first the kind of run on hand sanitizer, and you were reading these stories of people spending, you know, $100 a bottle for a bottle of Perel or whatever, and then it was Lysol, and, and now it's toilet paper. Um, and as you know, humans managed to survive for a couple of hundred thousand years or so before we were pampering ourselves with these high-performance hygiene products. Um, and you and I have kind of joked about the history of, of toilet paper before, and I'm not going to ask you what we did before we had toilet paper and hand sanitizer, but uh, when did these products come to market? Uh, when was when did hand sanitizer become a thing? Well, I, you know, I... I Doing the research, I really loved it because I've always been a fan of how companies get their names. You know, Ham, the, that spray product of Arthur or whatever the name was. Yeah. Well, how about the company that makes Purell, Gojo? All right. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's it's Goldie and Jerry Lipman, right? So it's the, not an Indian company? No, Goldie and Jerry. I mean, come on, the Lipman from Akron, Ohio. You can't 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 beat that. The Gojos, okay? So here they go. The Gojos in the 40s recognize, uh, Goldie in particular recognizes that these guys who work, these people who work in rubber factories, uh, particularly they, they all go into, the, the women go into the rubber factories during the war, men come back. She noticed that these chemicals are taking a toll on their hands, right? So yeah. they, come up, they come up with a, with kind of a hand cleanser, uh, a hand cleaner for these industrial workers, okay? And they, they, they build a business out of it. Now, 1988, they, they build on an innovation that an earlier guy had to create Purell, okay? That's one of their, their ideas. They, they were used to these working environments. They were used to this idea. So they come up with this thing called Purell in 1988, and they've got a brand new market, right? So Purell becomes their, their I mean, come on, it becomes their, their stocking horse. And uh, so that's how far it goes back. I mean, it goes back into the 60s when a guy had this idea of a, of a, of a, a, kind, of a, a kind of a hand sanitizer. But Purell was the one that really broke through. And why did it break through? Because they, uh, Goldie and Jerry, the company, Gojo, had a, a distribution system. And that's where, where the, rest, the rest, I guess, is history. Yeah, and Perel, like uh, you know, like a Xerox or like a like Kleenex, you know, they've uh, they've got a brand that's almost uh, ubiquitous with uh, with the product. 
Yeah, you know, no one, no one ever goes back and, and talks about this guy, Lupe Hernandez, uh, who found out that, that alcohol could be delivered in a gel form as a hand sanitizer. Lupe was the guy who, who first put it together. But it was, uh, the, it was uh, I love these, they, you know, these are great stories because these are like classic immigrant uh, entrepreneurs who come up with a better idea. So Lupe was a nursing student. And he came up with this idea that he could come up with this gel. So the guy gave Loopy the he was even better, but like you know anyone else, uh, no one remembers Loopy. Everyone everyone remembers uh, Yeah. And what about Lysol? Yeah. You know, Lysol, though interestingly enough, has its has its uh, has its birth in an epidemic, a cholera epidemic in Germany. No way. Way cholera epidemic in Germany in 1889. Uh, but but how does it become popular? Well, Spanish flu, uh, 1918. This is where Lysol really takes off. Uh, the advertising, the promotion, Lane and Fink took this, this brand, and that's where Lysol was really, really built. So uh, this, is a, this is a product that, it, that, that has its roots in two of the first kind of major a, 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 a epidemics, uh, uh, you know, one in the late uh, late 19th century and one in the early 20th century. That's where Lysol had it. I, I was intrigued. I wanted to find out kind of the history of the name. And, and it seems to be the Sol comes from one of the ingredients. And lye, the lye part, comes from the ability to, to freeze, take it away. So the name has to do with kind of taking out the ability to clean. And then the Sol has to do with the... Cosol, which is one of the ingredients in Lysol. How's that? All right. Well, that that that's good. I mean, they should go back to that in their marketing. That's a good origin story right now. I mean, they are authentically, uh, they were created for times like these. They should uh, they should be marketing that. Absolutely. Yeah. And what about toilet paper? <laughs> you know, it's hard to talk about toilet paper and without mentioning the breakthroughs. No. Oh. Ooh, ouch. Anyway, no, no, no. Toilet paper. Let's not whitewash history. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. The the introduction of packaged toilet tissue goes back to a guy like named Joseph Gandhi. Uh, his idea was his paper could help. He put some aloe. Actually, very much like those uh, fresh wipes uh, mm -hmm. as a medicinal. The, the, the big breakthrough. The big breakthrough were the Scott brothers in Philadelphia uh, in the 1890s, 1880s, 90s, particularly 1890, they introduced what we know as toilet paper on paper. That was, that's what did it. Bring in toilet paper, perforated on a roll, 1890, put them on a roll. They continued. The problem is with toilet paper at that time was it was unmentionable. It was very difficult to sell. So it was sold in, 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 in plain wrappers. It was under the counter. It was, it was Victorian times. People didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Pretty soon, it started to catch on. And another Philadelphia brand called Waldorf uh, started to catch on. So the Scott brothers said, and, their, and, and one of their, their sons said, wait a minute. We've been selling this stuff private label. We're going we're gonna, to we'll buy the Waldorf brand. They bought it. By 1921, the Waldorf brand was the largest 
toilet paper brand in the, in, in the United States, 64% of their sales. And by the way, another really important, another really important uh, 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 kind of innovation comes off that, which is the paper towel. After, yeah. after they see how that worked, and they, the next was paper towel. In every case, it used to be that they were dealing with things that weren't mentionable. Okay. Yeah. And so they, they innovated and continued to sell. So there we are today. We can thank uh, Gaiety is like that guy who invented uh, the uh, sanitizer. We forget his name. We certainly know the name Scott. Awesome. I'm, it's surprising to realize, though, that the sort of modern interpretation of toilet paper didn't come along until only about 125, 130 years ago. Um, yeah. We'll into that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that the guy who originally invented it was doing just what we do today, toilet tissue with, with, with aloe and the modernization of it. He did it, he did it back then in the 1850s and 60s. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a crisis opportunity. Maybe now, maybe we're kind of due for some new innovation in the toilet paper industry. So. Well, I think, I think what you're, you know, in all seriousness, I think out of this experience, you're going to see a lot of innovation. You yeah. will see a lot of innovation. We're going to look back, some will look back, uh, God willing, at this time and say, oh, yeah, it was during the, the, the great, you know, COVID-19 pandemic that someone came up with X, Y, and Z. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, it, the great innovation seemed to me uh, it is funny, but it's going to relate to food delivery. It's going to it's going yeah. to relate to a lot of stuff that's going to that's going to help us get through this. Well, it's it's we always joke about not wanting to speculate, but it's not difficult to imagine that there is going to be a new heightened. I wouldn't call it paranoia because it's 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 quite well founded, but it's likely there is going to be a lot more. Uh, consumer awareness around hygiene and cleanliness, for sure. Well, not only that, not unlike, I think, what we've talked about with 9-11, which kind of had a lot of, I still argue, a lot of the, the wake-up call for the purpose movement. I honestly think that there's going to be a really important uh, story here about generations, uh, because already we're seeing the bifurcation, you know, all the the millennials, the role they need to play here in terms of the safety and security of, of the greatest generation and their children. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's going to be in corporate America, or I think global branding, um, there, this is testing. You know, you've always said, how is this whole purpose thing going to get tested? Well, you're seeing it right now. This is tested, this is tested to an extreme. And I think coming out of it the other way, you're going to see, I mean, I, again, I, I uh, was very impressed at how some of the muscle memory in organizations like Southwest, who have never, never had a furlough during a down, uh, organizations like Brooks Brothers, who've always been there through their customers, through every kind of catastrophe and challenge. Uh, I think they're, uh, L.L. Bean, um, these yeah. are companies who are already just, you can see their muscle memory. Yeah. And I, Hyatt. I think you're going to see more and more of it. Yeah. Yeah. And Hyatt has been very, they've been very, um, very aggressive in really using that purpose positioning as how they've been communicating with their, uh, with their people and their customers. So, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, and uh, stay safe. Keep it clean. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put some Purell in there. Yeah. <laughs> so stay safe, keep it clean, and uh, we'll talk in a couple of weeks. All right.
Thanks to Bruce for lightening up the mood a little bit. He's always good for that. And um, before concluding, I'll emphasize, maintain your distance and wash your hands, especially for you dudes out there. And why do I say that? Because apparently there's evidence that all of us, but especially us guys, do not do a great job of washing our hands. Last month, there was an article in Slate written by Rebecca Onion titled The Long History of the Hand-Washing Gender Gap. You can't make this up. Onion notes in her article that, quote, there is a consistent gender gap in hand-washing practices. That gap is self-reported. A survey of American men and women taken in 2018 asked whether particular hygienic behaviors were important, changing your underwear every day, washing your hands after using public transportation, sanitizing living spaces, and found gender gaps between 8 and 10 percentage points. Researchers see this when they make observations in public spaces, too. In 2003, a study of travelers in North American airports found that 83% of women hand-washed after using the restroom versus 74% of men. In three surveys taken between 2005 and 2010, Observers watched visitors to restrooms at big public attractions like museums and stadiums in Atlanta, Chicago, New York City, and San Francisco and discovered hand-washing gender gaps ranging between 16 and 25 percentage points. One study from 2003 even found that a simple sign posted in a campus restroom urging hand-washing greatly increased compliance among women but did nothing for men. End quote. The article goes on to track this gender gap of handwashing over the course of the last 120 years, ostensibly making the case that women have been far more receptive to warnings of diseases spreading and have been responsible for promoting better practices of hygiene. It's an interesting article with some amusing insights, so look it up if you happen to have some extra time on your hands. So stay safe, keep it clean, make the most of this time by spending it with loved ones in your home or on Zoom, read books, catch up on movies or TV shows you intended to get around to. I've introduced my son to Band of Brothers, and we're spending our time doing that, which is a lot of fun. Make yourself a quarantine cocktail. But whatever you do, wash your hands well and limit your social interactions. Thanks again to Dr. Elena Konis and to Bruce Weindrick for sharing their insights. Thanks for listening to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel. Be well.